The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turning to God's Word tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as we come to the end of of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians tonight, we're coming to the conclusion of a lengthy argument that Paul's been making really for three full chapters. And uh, my wife was asking me, Well, what are you preaching on tonight? And I mentioned that Paul was talking about meat sacrifice to idols. And she said, Well, didn't you already preach on that? And she said, In fact, haven't you already preached on that twice? And I said, Well, yeah, this this is kind of the third time I'm preaching on it. She paused and then she said, well, I guess if God wanted to inspire his word to talk about it three times, we need to hear about it three times. Um, So here we are, back at meat sacrifice to idols. But I think it does beg a question, what's Paul doing back on this subject again here at the end of chapter 10? He's been talking about it for three chapters. And I think for us, unfortunately, when you take a sermon series, we we chop things up in little sections. And so a a three-chapter argument that Paul's been trying to make in one flow We've broken up into six or seven different sermons, and so we can kind of lose the flow of Paul's logic. And so before we read the end of of chapter 10 tonight, I want to take just a minute to maybe trace back what Paul has been saying and give us some context for why he's back on the subject again. So you may remember back in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul began, now concerning meat sacrifice to idols. He was turning to another question that the Corinthian church had for him. It's uh, the third or fourth in a series of questions. Um, and in chapter 8, Paul's key point was that while the Corinthians were theologically right, it is okay to eat meat that had sat on uh, uh, an idol's altar at one point. You're theologically right, Corinthians. It's okay to do that. He was uh, encouraging them and challenging them that um, they should refrain from eating it even if they had the right to do so for the sake of their brothers who would be offended by it or made to stumble over their eating. But um, as he comes to the end of chapter 8, Paul realizes what he's asking the Corinthians to do is to sacrifice something that they have a right, so to speak, to do for the sake of someone else. And so in chapter 9, Paul goes in depth to give an example of his own ministry. And how Paul, though he had a right to be paid for his gospel ministry, gave that up so that he would not offend the Corinthian uh, Corinthian brothers in the church. And and he worked. um, uh, He worked the entire uh, time while he was in Corinth, giving up what was his right um, in order uh, to not place a hindrance in front of the gospel or for his brothers. And as as chapter 9 came to a close, Paul sort of rallied his fellow believers and argued that we should all exercise self-control in order to effectively run the race that God has given us, preaching the gospel and acting at all times in ways that will benefit his kingdom and benefit the spread of the gospel and benefit the church and not hinder it for our own sake. That was uh, chapter 9. In chapter 10, though, Paul was specifically concerned that the Corinthian believers might use this theological truth So there's this theological point that, yes, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, 
Paul was concerned that, that some Corinthians might take that theological truth too far and say, well, hey, if it's okay to, to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols and, hey, you know, there's no other gods but our true God, then no problem for us to go back and participate in some of those idol-worshiping festivals, some of those pagan rites and feasts that we used to participate in when we were unbelievers and that all our friends are still participating in. That shouldn't be a problem, right? It's okay to eat this meat. And so Paul in chapter 10 goes through to warn them against idolatry. And he says, take heed if you think that that you stand. Because if you're actually participating in pagan festivals and and in in specific feasts and worship to to demons, then you have actually re-engaged in idolatry. And do not expect, Corinthians, that you can engage in idolatry and please God. And he brings in the example of the Israelites and um, and, and he notes how God was not pleased with his own people. Um, and, uh, and so Paul ends uh, in verse 22 by uh, saying, um, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Certainly not. And as he says in 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And so chapter 10 was really him, uh, Paul taking a specific example or a specific instance that the Corinthians could take the point he's made and take it too far and take it into sin. And so this is, this is where Paul's gone, and he's now kind of coming to the conclusion of this argument, the conclusion of the point. He'll move on to a new topic next week, um, and that's where we arrive in verse 23 of chapter 10. Paul's going to conclude his answer to their question, and in doing so, Paul's going to give them a standard or criteria for, for the Corinthians to apply as they make decisions about meat sacrificed to idols um, in, in their lives. So let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll read verse 23 down through chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why would my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. But just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray as we come to this text. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that we would never grow weary or grow used to the presence of your word. May we come eagerly to hear what you have to say to us, as even the same passage speaks new truth to us as your spirit applies it to our hearts and our lives anew each time we come and sit under your words and your authority. So speak to us by your spirit now for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So as we approach this text tonight, the question for us is, is how do we make decisions? How do we make decisions? What's our process for deciding what to do and what not to do? 
When we're faced with questions, do I listen to this song or not listen to this song? Do I watch this movie or not watch this movie? Do I go to this event or not go to this event? Do I drink this drink or not drink this event? As we're faced with questions about how we act and what we do, how do we make decisions? Well, Paul is encouraging us here, I believe, is that there's a two-step process in making decisions. As we make decisions, of course, there is the first question of whether something is biblical or unbiblical. In other words, does my relationship with Christ, does my decision to be under the authority of God make this something I should or should not do? That's question number one. In and of itself, is this thing something that I should or should not do? But as it turns out, neither you nor I are the only person alive. We're not the only person in the church. And because we live with other people and among other people, Paul is consistently arguing that even after we answer this first question, is this thing in and itself right or wrong, we need to ask a second question of, is this thing helpful or a blessing or able to build up those around us? Is it honoring? Is it encouraging? Is it for the benefit of the people around us? See, the key point that Paul's making here at the end of chapter 10 is that there's two different criteria we can use to decide how we act in different situations. The Corinthians are fans of this, all things are lawful for us as Christians. Paul's actually referenced that back in chapter 6. You may remember it then. A number of times throughout uh, Corinthians, Paul comes back to, to, to quote this phrase, all things are lawful which um, we believe, and pretty much all commentators believe, is what the Corinthians were, were espousing. And we don't think that they mean that literally every single thing, perhaps some of them did, but Paul certainly doesn't mean to imply that literally every single thing is lawful for a Christian. But here, as he quotes it, I think what he's saying is, yes, anything you eat is lawful. In a sense, you have the lawful right, the theological right, to, to eat any of the, the meat you may come across, any of the food that that you come across. And so while he's theologically agreeing to this, Paul's saying, well, but, but what criteria do we use? If the only criteria we have when faced with a decision is, is this lawful? Can I do it? I think the all things are lawful, the question, is this lawful, is basically the, the equivalent to what we ask today. Well, what's wrong with it? You know, you know how we say that when we're fo- faced with a decision. And here's something we really want to do. And someone suggests, perhaps, that we shouldn't do it. And we say, but what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong? What's really so bad? Am I really going? And, and that's, that's the question in a nutshell. What's really wrong with this? Isn't there a sense in which I have some theological right to do this? Well, what's wrong with this question? What's wrong with this question is that, one thing at least, is that it's asking the question in a vacuum. But Paul wants to keep the church from thinking in a vacuum. They don't live by themselves. They live in a community. They live with other people. And so decisions we make aren't made by ourselves, isolated from other people. They're made amongst other people, amidst other people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in fellowship with one another in our Savior. And since, when, since we live among other people, Paul argues, whether or not something is lawful is certainly a first question, but it's not the only question. And it's perhaps not the primary question here. The question is, what is helpful? What builds others up? Now, 
at the root of his argument, you should notice a very common scriptural theme. Paul is really contrasting a self-oriented way of living out a theological principle or an others-oriented way of living out a theological principle. And when Paul argues that our guide to a decision should not be, is this lawful, but instead should be, does this build others up, he's really giving a practical example of a truth that's sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. You, I'm sure, can think of a number of passages. You might think of Paul in Philippians where he says, each one of you should look not to your own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Or, or maybe you think of what Paul said to the Romans when he said, each of us should please his neighbor for his neighbor's good to build him up. Or maybe you think of Jesus' words, his, his companion to the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, all throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged again and again, it's not about your interests, not about yourself. Let each look to the interests of the other to build him up. And Paul's really just giving a practical example of how that plays out. Corinthians, here's one practical example in what you eat that enables you to live out this principle. I think it, it's easy to approve of, of these verses in theory. You know, when I, when I read, consider others' interests, not just my own. It's easy to say, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I'll consider their interests. I would love to consider others' interests. Uh, but when it actually comes to specific examples, particular decisions in life where I have to sacrifice something or give something up for someone else, suddenly this is no longer theory. It's right in front of me. And I think that's where Paul's saying, look here, here's a, here's a very literal situation you're faced with. It's right in front of you. And that's hard. I was thinking about this recently. I was uh, coaching my kids in uh, the very difficult decision of what game are we going to play this afternoon? Is it going to be Frozen Match, or is it going to be Batgammon? Which game are we going to play? And as I was going back and forth in the debate and trying to help them say, okay, well, you know, what would the other one like to, to play? Let's consider each other's interests. And, and to me, it's like, well, come on, guys, it's just a game. You know, consider the other's interests. And again, it's someone else having to sacrifice something, so it's easy to talk about the principle. And I was... I was going through that, and I was, I was thinking about the sermon, and all of a sudden I was thinking back to a, a situation shortly after my wife and I were married, just a couple months afterwards. My wife, um, we'd been married about three months or so, arranged for a family get-together with her extended family. Uh, it was her aunt, her cousin, uh, her cousin's children, her parents, were all getting together. But at that stage in our marriage, she didn't know to check the Ohio State football schedule. See, we, she scheduled this get-together on the very date of the Ohio State-Michigan game. And Ohio State and Michigan were ranked number one and number two in the country, and everyone in the sports world was calling this the game of the century. And we're supposed to have a family get-together. I remember uh, having a discussion um, with her and, and, and her extended family, and I ended up parked on the couch with a TV tray watching the Ohio State-Michigan game while the rest of her extended family ate dinner in another room. This is a great way to introduce myself to the family. But this is particularly a bad job of giving up a very insignificant interest of mine to consider how I can bless others. This is a very poor example on my part. And maybe this is something of a humorist failing, 
But I think we can all think of perhaps things that are more significant, where we're put in a situation where we're called to give up something we want in order to bless others for the sake of others. Times maybe when we haven't been willing to give up what we want. And because we don't throw a childish temper tantrum, and because we can justify that there's nothing wrong with what we want, it suddenly seems like, well, we can go ahead and do this. It's amazing how easy it is for us to rationalize what we do because we don't throw the tantrum that our three-year-old does if we don't get it. But the same issue is at stake. Will I pursue what I want or will I act to bless and to build up others? I think perhaps we can take this one step further and and say this. Sometimes I think in my mindset and, and I think in our mindsets, we can say, well, Scripture always wants us to do what's right. But then there's sort of the extra spiritual step of also doing what's honoring to others instead of what I want. And we almost view that as the extra step that the really good Christian takes. But Scripture never describes it this way. Scripture always describes this standard, this criteria of making decisions based on the interests of others as the goal, the way someone will act if they are in Christ and if they are loved by and in love with their Savior. Now, this is the standard that Paul uses here in this issue. I think Paul spends verse 25 through the first verse of chapter 11 really clarifying and arguing for this standard in three different ways. So I want to look at three different things that Paul says or three different ways that Paul reinforces this argument uh, in in this passage. So first of all, um, he really uh, takes uh, time in verses 25 through 30 to clarify what this looks like to clarify what this standard looks like in practice. So he argues in verse 25 that whatever is sold in the meat market, Christians may eat without raising any questions. And it's important that he say this because if you remember that a Jewish person, if they were going to go into the meat market, they would, they would be like a, a detective agent sort of questioning about the meat in every possible angle to make sure there is no way that meat could have actually had something unkosher about it. So what Paul's saying is, look, you don't have to take that approach to the meat. If there's meat sold in the market, you may eat it. Why? Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. This is the truth undergirding that. So um, Paul uh, gives this, and and he then clarifies further. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, and obviously we're talking about a normal dinner here, not the pagan feast that he just addressed in chapter 10 as a problem, But if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, go. Go to dinner and don't ask any questions. There's no need for you to worry if that meat was or was not on the altar. However, the situation changes, Paul says, if someone says to you outright, this meat was offered on the altar for an idol. In this case, the believer should refrain from eating the meat for the sake of that person's conscience. Now, I think there's two questions that at least arise in my mind and, and maybe arising in your mind with Paul's statement here. The first question is, th- is this. Who is it that's saying this meat was offered to an idol? There's a couple possibilities. The first possibility could be this is one of those weaker Christian brothers who was also invited to the same dinner. So here you go over to your, your unbelieving uh, friend's house, and there's, a, there's another Christian who is what Paul talked about as a weaker brother who, who would take offense, who would not eat this. And that Christian brother, that weaker Christian brother, has done his detective sleuthing. 
He's gone around. Where'd this meat come from? What was this meat done with? And he discovers, lo and behold, this meat was offered on an altar of an idol. And so he comes to you as a good brother in Christ. Hey, brother in Christ, this meat was offered on the altar to an idol. That's one possibility. And so it's another uh, brother in Christ with a weaker conscience who brings this to you. The other, the other possibility is that this is the unbelieving host, the unbeliever who says this was offered to an idol. And um, I think uh, commentators basically say in agreement there's a couple reasons why this might happen. Some unbelievers may want to be gracious to their guests and know that some Christians object to this. And so they want to give this truth and they expect that the Christian will act consistently with what they know of believers. Uh, so, you know, Christian, I know you're a Christian. I know some Christians don't eat this. This was offered on an altar to an idol. Therefore, the implication is I would expect you probably wouldn't eat this. It's one possibility. Others, um, others suggest that perhaps an unbeliever would be testing the Christian. They offer this truth and wonder, will the Christian act the way I expect him to or not? So there's a couple of different possibilities here. Um, another possibility would be that there's a Jew, um, a, 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 maybe a, a relative or a friend who is a Jewish brother who would, would take objection to this. Um, so which is it? is it? Is it all of these? Is it one of these? Um, and commentators are split. Some commentators believe that it's specifically unbelievers the context is talking about. Some believe that it's specifically Christians that are being addressed, and some believe that it, that it could be any of these. I tend to, um, if you look at verse 32, uh, in verse 32, Paul specifically says that we're to give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or to the church of God. And to me, this is a very comprehensive statement that says we're not to give offense to any of these categories, whether it's a Jew, an unbelieving Greek, whether it's someone in the church. Um, and that uh, is one reason I would, I would say that I think this could apply to both believer and unbeliever. Um, Certainly, it could be a weaker brother uh, in Christ, uh, but it, it could also be an unbeliever. I don't think the text limits it to that. I think the point, whoever is asking the question, is clear. We are to refrain from eating for that person's conscience. And it's very important than what Paul says. He says that we refrain from eating for that person's conscience. And that leads us right into the second question. Because the second question that should naturally arise, if we're here in the text and, and we hear Paul say, hey, if someone says that this is altered on an idol, uh, you shouldn't eat it because they might be offended. And the first question that could be rattling around is, well, well, wait a second. Does that mean that I'm not supposed to do something? Something is now unbiblical for me just because they've got bad theology or just because they don't like it or just because they would expect something different. Isn't Where was this freedom in Christ? I thought we had freedom in Christ. Has my freedom in Christ now been chopped in half because someone else thinks something that's, that's different? That's, the, I think, the second question. And so Paul very, very carefully tells us that, no, your freedom in Christ is not chopped up. You don't refrain because their statement suddenly makes it unbiblical or, or unlawful for you. You do it for their conscience' sake. You do it for their sake. Look at the questions that uh, uh, he asks. I think verses 29 and 30 are key here. He argues, Paul argues, that the reason we make the decision not to eat is not because it has suddenly become wrong for us to do so. Another person's opinion is not now binding our conscience or hindering our freedom in Christ. Rather, we make the decision because of our love and concern for that person. It isn't that my liberty is suddenly restricted. It isn't that we are suddenly condemned for eating what we properly gave thanks for. 
Rather, we pass on the food for the sake of the other person and his conscience. It's out of love for him that we abstain. I think Paul very carefully lays out how we should act and why we act that way, answering some potential objections. So this is Paul's first point. He takes time to clarify how we should act, reinforcing again and again that our motive is our concern for the other person. Christian living is, at root, about considering what is helpful to build others up. That's the root principle here. So that's the first thing Paul says. The second way Paul reinforces this standard comes in verse 31. Verse 31 is a verse we all know and we've all heard. It's applied broadly. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You can't get much more comprehensive than that. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But for Paul, this is a restatement, a summary of why we act the way that he has been encouraging us to act. Paul's arguing here that the core reason we make decisions based on what's helpful and encouraging for others is because that's what brings glory to God. That is what glorifies our God and our Savior. If I were, if I were to take a quick poll tonight, I think probably a, a good portion of you here tonight would be able to answer pretty quickly, what is man's chief end? What is man's purpose in life? What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made to glorify God. We fulfill how God created us, the way God created us, when we give Him glory. Our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction comes when we give glory to God. That's great. The follow-up question is, how do we give God glory? How do we give Him glory? And see, I think, as it turns out, what Paul's saying here is, how do we give God glory? Building others up. Acting on behalf of others. A poured-out love for other people is how we glorify God. I'm not, I'm not sure about you, but when I think of glorifying God, the first image that comes to my mind is singing. When I think of glorifying God, I think of singing praise to God. I sing about God's glory, or I sing praise to God, and, and I'm giving Him glory. And I, I think that's, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with the fact that singing to God's glory does bring Him glory. But Scripture, I think, does not primarily associate glorifying God with singing. Scripture over and over primarily focuses on how we act toward other people as our way of glorifying God. In Scripture, we glorify God when we treat others and when we act in a way that brings glory to the King of Kings. You might think of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4.11. Peter argues this, as each person has received a gift, use that gift to serve one another in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Or maybe you think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and so glorify God who is in heaven. Or maybe you think of 2 Corinthians nine thirteen, where Paul says that by helping other believers financially because we both confess Christ, we glorify God. It's the way we act towards one another that brings glory to God. Over and over in Scripture, we're told that acting out of love for one another because of Christ is the blueprint for how we bring glory to God. I guess, I guess we could put it this way. Glorifying God in Scripture is not primarily a matter of singing a hymn or a worship song about His glory. Glorifying God is primarily about treating others differently than we would without Christ. 
because that brings him glory. When we treat others in a way that we could not act and would not act if we had not been died for by a Savior, the praise and glory doesn't come to us. Everyone knows I, in my own sinfulness, would not act that way. Why am I acting differently? Because Jesus Christ has died for me and his love now compels me, as Paul said in Corinthians. So when I act in a way that Christ's love compels me to, the only glory and the only praise should go to the one who's compelling me, to God. So how do we give glory to our great Savior? It's by acting in a way that blesses others. Acting in a way that we could not do apart from God. I heard a song yesterday morning. Some of you in the room listened to this song with me. And I loved the chorus. The chorus was, worship is more than a song. Worship is more than a song. Giving glory to God is more than just singing. Yes, it involves that. But it's how we act. It's how we live. And I don't want us to miss the application of this verse. This verse guides our decisions and our actions with others. And it also gives us the strength we need as we interact with others. Because when I'm called on to sacrifice what I want, when I'm called on to sacrifice my desire, even if it's something I think that I should have the freedom to do in order to help and to build up someone else, I don't make that decision because of my feelings or because I'm a good person or because, well, I should want to or because of a context. I make that decision because of my desire to glorify God. Now, God has implanted himself in the midst of all of our relationships and all of our decisions. Why do I act this way? Why would I sacrifice what I want? Because of God. Because of the glory of God. Because I long to give glory to God. That now strengthens and gives, and gives, gives root to why I would make that decision and how I could. And my own weakness, how could I do it? It's because of God. When we bring God and his glory into every decision we make, That now empowers us and strengthens us because his grace is with us as his name and what he has done dwells in us. And so what I think Paul is doing here in verse 31 is he's giving the foundation, he's giving the groundwork. Why do we act in order to build one another up? Why do we act for other people? Because our desire is to bring glory to God. This principle broadly reorients my thinking and my motivation and gives me fresh strength and grace to serve others for the glory of our God. That's the second thing Paul does. The third thing Paul does, very briefly, chapter 11, verse 1. We act to build one another up. We do it because of our passion to glorify God. This is still hard. This is still hard, but Paul brings it home in in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, it's easy to focus on the first half and think that Paul's rallying people around his own example. And we start to think, well, gee, Paul, uh, that's a little self-focused of you. What happened to the whole thing about being chief of sinners? You know, now you want everyone to follow your example. But that's not the case. Paul's calling people to imitate him. Why? Because he is imitating Christ. And this is the core issue. In Romans chapter 15, Paul puts this very clearly. We read the first half of the verse, but the full verse goes like this. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his neighbor's good to build him up. Why? Because Christ did not please himself. Why do we do this? What gives us the strength to do this? Why would we want to? Because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
Sinclair Ferguson has this comment on this verse. He says, there's something devastatingly simple about this. It reduces the issue to the basic question of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It reduces this question to the basic question of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to imitate him since his spirit indwells us and makes us more like him. That's the root issue. We please ourselves, uh, we please others, not ourselves, because Christ pleased us, not himself. That's what Jesus himself called us to, isn't it? What did Dr. Rogers read this morning in John 15? He read, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that we lay down our lives for our friends. See, following Christ's example is, in the end, the reason and the root and the guiding principle for the decisions here, for Paul's answer and argument in this text. The whole thing about meat sacrificed to idols comes back to this. We imitate Christ. We want to know how to act? Act like Christ. And in acting like Christ, we will glorify God. And what will it look like to act like Christ and glorify God? It will look exactly as Paul has just laid out in acting for one another's good. In other words, want to know what to do about meat? Go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Jesus Christ gave up himself. He gave up his life, his desires, his will, his comfort in order to love you and to love me. He loved us to the point of death. And if we aren't captured by, and if we aren't enraptured with that love that Jesus has for us, we don't know Christ. How can we know that and not be captured by that love? But if we are captured by and enraptured with that love, if that love of Christ has surrounded us and changed us, then we will love others and act for them as Christ did for us. Whether that means dying for them or giving up our stake for them. And that's what Paul roots his answer in. It's all about the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Father, there are many questions we face how could, how could the Bible be a manual to address every single decision and question we have to make in life? But thank you for this example where Paul says, we want to know how to make a decision here? Go back to the core principles of the gospel. Imitate Christ. Be like Christ. For in so doing, you will bring glory to God. Glory to God. May we be guided by these principles. May they root us and guide us as we make the decisions you call us to make day in and day out. And oh, may your name be glorified through us. We pray this through Christ. Amen.